welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. As we continue in the Gospel of Luke, now I'm moving into chapter 23, and we continue to move through the remarkably unjust but divinely designed trials of Christ before his crucifixion. And so let us hear the word of God together. This is Luke 23, verses 1 to 5. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. This is God's holy and perfect word. May he have its full, full revelation upon our minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As you know, there were scores and scores of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus in his uh, life, death, burial, and resurrection, the earthly ministry of Jesus. There are different ways to analyze them. Some of them are direct messianic prophecies. Others are prophecies that are repeated multiple times in different places in the Bible, different verses and texts. There are also allusions to what he would do and say that were fulfilled by his actions and by his life. There are indirect references and very direct prophecies. And there are also types, which are prophetic symbols, where a person or thing in the Old Testament foreshadows a person or a thing in the New Testament. The list and the way to analyze it is nearly endless. And that's why so many have been fascinated to see how many pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament there are that he fulfilled in the new. One scholar, J. Barton Payne, has found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. Alfred Edersheim, in his landmark work, The Life and Times of Jesus and Messiah, uh, researched this further and found 456 Old Testament verses regarding the Messiah or his times. And many have said that uh, Conservatively, at least 300 prophecies fulfilled in his earthly ministry, one researcher wrote. However you look at the numbers, it is a remarkable fulfillment of historic prophecy. But one prophecy that we see fulfilled over the years of his life, mentioned in many places, but fulfilled specifically in the week of his trials, 
was a prophecy that Jesus himself referred to the night he was betrayed. In John 15 and verse 25, you can see it. Jesus said, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus said that prophecy is going to be fulfilled this night and in these final days. And it became clear that in the trials of Jesus, he was not going to be treated fairly by a lost world. No one else in history ever went through six bogus trials, ran through within 24 hours, all of which exonerated him and was convicted anyway. I defy you to find anyone in history who was treated more unfairly than that. The broken justice of the life and the trial of Jesus Christ is on display in the sham trials that Luke has been talking about. We've seen three already, the sham Jewish trials that were done over in the cover of darkness and into the morning. And now beginning in Luke 23, verse 1, we're going to see the three sham civil trials done before Rome and Herod. As we see this broken justice, I want to remind you that Jesus also said that we as his disciples would taste the same injustice from a world that hated him because that word world will also hate us. In the same prophetic segment, if you will, Jesus said something to the disciples the night before this all happened in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so broken justice was what Jesus experienced, and he prophesied is what his followers will experience too. And that's one of the reasons these passages are in such detail in Luke and in all four of the gospel writers they all go in some detail or another into these sham trials so that we could see what the Savior suffered and know that we too will walk through some of the same injustice and indeed millions of believers over the centuries have experienced the promise of Christ but there is an encouragement for the suffering Christian who suffers unjustly for the name of Jesus. And that is this. There is going to be a final hearing. I don't know if you're aware of that. Every human gavel can fall and every human sentence can be given. But if it has to do with you and your faith, there will be a final hearing held someday in heaven where all those that ever brought broken justice your way because you love Jesus will stand if they've not trusted Christ before the judgment seat of Christ in Revelation 20. And the one that was judged by men will judge men. And in heaven, everything will be seen for what it really was and made right. But broken justice is part of the life of Jesus in this chapter, and it will be part of the life of the believer. And we, we are given an opportunity to see what it looked like. And I simply want to make six observations as we walk through verses 1 to 7 in Luke 23 about what broken justice looked like for Jesus. The first thing you can see is that his accusers had flawed integrity, and that's putting it mildly. This was ludicrous. This was beyond unjust. Now, this had been building for some months. We know as we've studied the Gospel of Luke that months had passed already 
beyond the point where the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees had begun to gather secretly, and the, the gospel writers tell us they had begun to plot about how to destroy Jesus. And the word destroy there means murder. It means take him out of the picture. They had met and tried to come up with various plots. Jesus entered Jerusalem on that wonderful triumphant uh, day when he entered the city as the triumphal Messiah, and the crowds were rising to a point where these Pharisees could not take it any longer, and so they met saying, we've got to do something, and we've got to do it soon. And so a plot was hatched to see if they could trap him alone and capture him and either murder him secretly or place him into the hands of the Romans. They needed someone to reveal where Jesus would be so they could catch him without the crowds being around him. And lo and behold, as we've already seen in Luke, that betrayer knocked on the door of these these high priests and Pharisees, even as they were meeting. His name was Judas of Iscariot. He arranges to betray Jesus. The betrayal is put in motion, and Jesus is found in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is taken there, and we saw and have gone through all of that already. He was shackled and taken and put through three of the six sham trials he would face in less than 24 hours. The first three were religious trials before the Jews. They were all conducted illegally. They broke over 20 of their very own legal rules to try Jesus. He was tried, first of all, by the the high priest for life named Annas, who tried to find charges against him and couldn't find anything that would stick. Then, in the midst of that, after Peter denied even knowing him, he was marched across the hallway of the great high priest's house to Caiaphas, who gathered all the Sanhedrin together and who challenged Christ to declare that whether he was the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus rightly said, I am. From there, in order to make it legal, since no trials by the Jews were supposed to be held at night, they gathered again as dawn broke at 5 a.m. that morning. The Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court of Israel, gathered in their chambers at the temple. And they went through the sham trial again with Jesus and challenged him again to say whether he was the Christ, the Messiah. And he said, you've said it yourself. So now they had him on blasphemy in their eyes, although it's not blasphemy if it's true. But they never bothered to look into the claims and acknowledge the miracles of Jesus. And so in their minds, they wanted to condemn him to death. But they had a problem. They were a captive culture. The Romans were occupying uh, conquerors, and they had taken away the right of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, to condemn anyone to death. So they had to, get, to bring him to Pilate and to come up with charges that would disturb Pilate enough so that Pilate would condemn Jesus to crucifixion. Little did they know that they were actually following in the prophecies of the word of God. What was read in our hearing today, Jesus said he would die no ordinary death by stoning or some other means. Jesus said he would be lifted up, which was a description of crucifixion. And so he had to be crucified. And these men in their evil were playing right into the, the, the plan of Almighty God. More on that later. And so they face this dilemma. They've condemned him by the end of Luke 22, and they cry out, or the priest cries out in front of the whole group, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. And then 
verse 20, chapter 23, verse 1, where we begin today, turns the next page in the story. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. So the scene shifts. They all solemnly file out of the Supreme Court chambers there in the temple, and they begin to move toward the Praetorium, which was the Roman garrison, and it was the place where Pilate the Roman governor, when he was in Jerusalem, held court and where he, he stayed. They, they walked across East Jerusalem to the tower of the Praetorium and they brought him. That's interesting. It says the whole company of them arose, all 70 of these priests, almost, in my view. You see, they had violated so many of their rules. They voted as a mob, they did it by a unanimous voice vote, but it wasn't quite unanimous, was it? Because we know that Luke, later in this chapter, will tell us that one of them, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, had not consented to their plan and action. Their rules actually called for every person to make a voice vote, yes or no, starting with the youngest and going all the way through the chamber to the oldest. So it had to be a single voice vote. They threw all that to the side. And, and perhaps Joseph and his voice were drowned out, along with Nicodemus, who also had, I believe, placed faith in Christ. But they made it into a mob vote and not a legal vote. And the high priest stirred them all up. He was supposed to vote last. <laughs> he voted for all of them. He stirred them up, and the whole company got up and left the room. It's interesting that one researcher on this said, actually, the law said that there were at least three days required for this proceeding. The first day to come to a verdict, the second day you stayed in session and you waited in chambers in case there was some other evidence that was brought by someone that would exonerate or free the prisoner before execution. And then the third day you waited a full day until you executed the person. All of that blown up. All of that ignored. They violated every, every protective law there was for the innocent Jesus. And instead, as a mob, they voted him to death, and then they all left en masse. In my opinion, and Dr. A.T. Robertson would agree, probably Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, not among them. That's speculation, but that's how the early morning ex happened. The point I'm making is this was mob rule. It was against every law that they themselves had written. The whole company rose and it was a mob decision. And the mob now goes and gathers outside the, 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 the praetorium, outside the porch where Pilate would render judgment. And it's probably something that Pilate had not seen before. He'd only been the, the governor there for about uh, seven years and never, perhaps, had he seen all of the Jewish Sanhedrin gathered outside his portico, along with the crowd that they were gathering and ginning up to anger. This was a big deal for Pilate to wake up to at six in the morning. He comes out and he sees this happening and wonders what has occurred. Well, the Bible tells us that they brought Jesus to him. They delivered him up and put him into the courtroom, if you will, before Pilate. Now, before I move into the conversation that 
Pilate had with Jesus, you need to know a little something about Pilate. Let me just put it this way. The best man of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, of whom no one could bring any accusation that ever rang true, the best man of all time was about to be brought before the worst judge of all time and one of the worst characters in history. Pilate, what do we know about him? Pilate was a, an unknown, mid-ranked military officer in, this, in the wars of Augustus Caesar in the early part of, of, of the 20s, 20 AD. Uh, and he uh, served with some distinction. And after the, the conflict he was in had, had, had been secured and peace had been secured by Rome, he went to Rome to make his fortune and to, and to see if he could make some political connections. He went there and he met a woman named Claudia Priscilla. She was the youngest daughter of Julia, who was the daughter of the Emperor Augustus. So he got himself into the family connection of the emperor himself. It was a wise move politically, but it was a horrible move personally because uh, Claudia, his mother, or his mother-in-law, was known throughout the, Ro- the Roman Empire as one of the women in Rome who lived the most disgraceful and depraved life imaginable. That's saying something in Roman culture. Augustus, uh, his fa- her father, often said he wishes he died before she ever showed up. How's, how's that for what would happen when you come home for Christmas? Anyway. But Pilate didn't care about the fact that he was marrying into a morally disgraced family with a morally disgraced woman and her mother. For him, it was a great political connection. And so he used that connection and he applied for a position. And he was awarded the procuratorship or the governorship of Judea. And he assumed it in AD 26. This all happened, I think, in AD 33. That's my opinion of when Jesus was tried and crucified. So about seven years of time. It had not been a good experience for the Jews or Pilate. Philo was an ancient Jewish scholar from Alexandria. This is how he described Pilate. Pilate was well known for his corruption, his acts of insolence, his lust, his habit of insulting people, including the Jewish leaders, his cruelty, his continual murders of people, untried and uncondemned, especially Jews, and his never-ending, grievous inhumanity. Wow. That was the record. Now, Pilate had a special problem getting along with the Jewish Sanhedrin and with the Jews of Judea. He had no respect for them, and he acted harshly toward them, and he had murdered a number of them at different points in his rule already. He was so oppressive that the Jews sent a delegation to Augustus in Rome, and they complained about it and asked for him to be replaced. And Pilate got back, taken back to Rome, reprimanded, and was basically put on probation. And the emperors had said, emperor had said, listen, you're on thin ice. I don't want to hear about any more complaints from that little dustbin called Judea. I thought you could handle this. Pilate comes back humiliated, angry at the Jews, but paranoid about his position. You'll see how that all plays in. By the way, a lot of critics of Christianity said for centuries that Pilate was a literary invention here that no one could be this 
duplicitous and fouled up, and that the whole trial experience of Jesus was invented by the gospel writers, and Pilate was kind of a a character invented for this play. Well, all of that was exploded in 1961 when an excavation was done of Pilate's house in, uh, in, uh, uh, at Caesarea Philippi, which is on the coast of Judea, modern Israel today. And they uncovered a marker with Pilate's name on it. He had dedicated a, a, a limestone block, which they often did in Latin to the emperor, whom he was trying to get on the better side of again. And it says, to the divine Augustus, this honor is given, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So Pilate goes from mystery man to someone who affirms the words of your Bible. Somebody once said, every time they stick a shovel into the ground in Israel, they overturn another Bible confirmation. And there you go. So he, had, he, he did one good thing with his miserable life. He confirmed that Bible you've got in your hands. Anyway, that was for free. But uh, so, so the best possible man of all time, Jesus brought before the worst possible judge. And Pilate is there. And, uh, and uh, by the way, he would go on to lose his governorship only three years after this by, again, overstepping his bounds and attacking the, the nation of Judea. But anyway, here is this utterly despicable man and yet placed in, 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 in charge of the perfect one. So flawed integrity all the way around. The people bringing the accusations, the person hearing the accusations. Let's go now to the second thing I see, and that is people with flawed integrity make false accusations, don't they? This was all a, a trumped-up deal. This was all false, all fake, all designed to to take Jesus out of the picture. It was hollow. Now, all the Gospels really tell the whole story. Each Gospel writer focuses on different aspects or portions of this. It was a pretty long process. It took hours. There's actually three trials here. The first between Jesus and Pilate took place in verses 1 to 7. Then Pilate puts the brakes on, We're gonna, and then he, he discovers that actually Jesus was from Galilee, and so he, 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 he decides to push this off on Herod. We have a trial, if you will, a hearing before Herod. That's verses 8 through 6. Herod punts it back to Pilate again, and then Pilate finally uh, goes through more of the conversation and more considerations with Jesus in verse 18 all the way through uh, verse 25 before he finally relents to the Jews and and condemns Jesus to death. So that's three trials. That's how the, the scholars look at it. Three false Jewish trials, three false civil trials. These took place over hours of time. And, and all, for all of the gospel writers fill in the details about them. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus was brought, they delivered him up. John tells us in his gospel in John 18 that they brought Jesus into the praetorium and they had the guards escort Jesus into the house or the praetorium of Pilate. But the Jews themselves, it says in John 18, did not go in themselves. In verse 28, it says, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. I just find this ironic, and many have. The Jews had, a, uh, they, they had invented a rule that 
uh, any, the house of any non-Jewish person was defiled and you had to be careful going in. If you came in, you had to go out and ceremoniously wash yourself. And if you were going to celebrate the Passover, you couldn't step foot in a, a Roman house that in, in that 24 hour period heading up to celebrating the Passover. So they come to the outside, they make the Roman guards take Jesus and walk him into Pilate's, Pilate's, Pilate's uh, palace there. I find it ironically comical. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this as well, said he found it ironic. He said the Jews take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. At the very same time, they're busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of the one who alone is the true Passover. (laughs) They're manipulating murder, but they want to make sure they don't step over a threshold and become ceremonially unclean. Hypocrites, filled with darkness and deception they are. Well, their hypocrisy gets worse. I find it interesting that the guards called Pilate very probably and told him, told him sir, there's, there's a prisoner to be tried. And he comes out into the, the area inside his palace and he sees Jesus standing there between two Roman guards and he goes, well, where are his accusers? And they said, well, they, they wouldn't come into the room. They're outside. They're outside your porch. And so Pilate goes from Jesus, who stays in the inside with guards standing around him, already beaten to a pulp, by the way. We saw that earlier in chapter 22. And he walks out to the portico, and there he sees the 70 Sanhedrin and all the other priests around them, and maybe a a group of people gathering at five or six in the morning. And he's got a two-part trial. It's interesting. He goes back and forth between speaking with Jesus privately and dealing with them publicly over the hours that are reflected in this chapter seven times deliberating and trying to figure out how to get off of this hook before he finally condemns Jesus. It's just a remarkable picture if you study it. So Pilate finds Jesus inside. His accusers are not there. He walks to the outside, and that's where Luke picks it up. And it says, so Pilate went outside. Pardon me, let me go back to Luke. I was in John there looking at the wrong part of my Bible. So they began to accuse him. So verse 2 of Luke 23 takes place as Pilate stands on the portico of his palace and they're all down below him and they all as a mob began to accuse him voices one after the other saying we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king there's this cacophony of lies one after the other over and over again and Pilate is taken aback by this Who knows, he might have had to handle it like a press conference. Oh, everybody settled down. Okay, you first. What? And so they bring these three accusations out that no doubt they'd concocted on the way over. They accused him. The word is kategoreo in the Greek. They they categorized, and it was a legal word. It was the the word used in that culture to to describe accusing somebody formally in front of a judge. So they knew what they were about. They thought court was in session and they were going to hang Jesus. So there's three accusations. They're all false. We found this man misleading our nation. 
when he had been doing exactly the opposite. He had been preaching and opening the truth of God's word and his own teaching as the word of God for three years. That's what he'd been doing. In reality, what he'd been doing was exposing their false doctrine, hadn't he? All he'd done for three years was speak truth to them. And he summed it up at the end of his ministry to the men in the upper room by saying, listen, the ultimate truth about me is I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's the message I have and that's the message you're going to have. But the scripture says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, the very Jewish people and those who were his own, Israel, and they did not receive him. Oh, he was not misleading them. He was opening truth to them. But because they loved lies, they would not have it. That's a false accusation. If anybody had been misleading the nation, it was that group of men. Second accusation. Look at it in verse, th- verse 2. And forbidding us to give tribute or taxes to Caesar. Now, if any of you know where we were in Luke a few weeks ago, if you know your Bibles in general about Jesus and taxes, what did he say to do with taxes? Pay them. It's one of the most famous encounters we have in the Gospels. It's a complete and utter falsehood. In fact, There were people in the Jewish community that wanted to figure out ways not to pay taxes. So you remember the story. They tried to to hook Christ into a situation where he would say, yes, don't pay taxes to the tyrant Caesar. But he took that coin in his hand and he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But they were trusting that the story hadn't gotten to Pilate, so they just hit him with a bold-faced lie. You see, they knew Pilate's character. They knew Pilate had no justice in his heart, and they knew that he was afraid of any political problems with the Jews. And so they hit him over and over again with sheer anger, not based on truth, hoping that that alone would cause Pilate to say, if he's a problem, I want him gone. Accusation number three, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, that's all in a manner of speaking, as we're going to see in a moment. They were trying to imply to Pilate that Jesus was a rival king to Caesar, that he was a political king, that he wanted to take over Judea in his own name, and perhaps in the name of the Jews They wanted Pilate to be afraid that he had an insurrection on his hands. And yet if you know the life of Jesus with these people, again, Jesus had no interest in taking on an earthly kingdom at that time. The Bible tells us numerous times that they were so excited about his miracles. The feeding of the 5,000 is an example. After he fed them all on the hillsides, it, it said they all rose up and wanted to take him and make him king. And he slipped away and would never take that honor. Jesus was not interested in being put forth as a political or a cultural king. Now, he is a king, but in a way that they did not even fully understand. But all of this was designed to make Pilate filled with fear, all based on lies, all designed from one corrupt group of people to tip another corrupt one over. I just find it interesting that 
when, uh, when attacks are made against the truth of who Jesus is, over the ages you can see that almost all of them are flawed or false. In fact, ultimately, every attack against Jesus is false, unless it's just anger at who he is. But most anti-faith attacks over the ages have been flawed or false, and hatred is the real motive, you see. Now, there may be some genuine questions there are, that people have that are critics of Christ and Christianity. They bear an answer. They deserve an answer. And we have answers. There may be genuine battles that a person has intellectually uh, and, and, and personally with the understanding of Jesus Christ as God. And that deserves answers. There may be questions that people have historically or whatever. And we have answers for all of these. But I've discovered that when it gets to a certain point... The, the attacks go beyond answers, and they're simply sourced in anger. You say, how do I handle a person like that? Well, answer them as you can, but realize ultimately that conviction is the only cure. I can tell you that. At a certain point, conviction brought by the Spirit, responded to by their hearts, is the only cure. Well, the last accusation of the three, you notice in the whole narrative, Pilate disregards the first two. He never mentions them. Perhaps he saw through them. But the one that did ring in his fearful heart was the last one. He is calling himself a king, verse 2. The only false charge of the three that got his attention was that one because he knew that according to the, their doctrine of ruling the world, Rome wouldn't have that, and Pilate couldn't have that. Why? Because how thin was the ice Pilate was on? Ultra thin. I just described the story to you. He didn't want it getting back to Rome that, Pi, that he had let an insurrection get boiling under his watch. That would be the end for Pilate. And so he interrogates Jesus. Now, Luke brings it down economically, as Luke did in his narrative, with just two simple verses. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. But like I said, the gospels themselves give us an even fuller picture. And it's well known that in John chapter 18, if you turn there in your Bibles, you'll see what happened. Because basically what happened is, remember, Jesus is still inside at this point between two Roman soldiers. Pilate had been getting all these accusations out on the porch. Pilate then turned, we believe, went back into his, his palace and had an individual interview with Jesus. And John records that. And we, we find it in John chapter 18, beginning at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. Here's one of the times when he walks back and forth. He's gone out now, and now he comes back in and called Jesus, told the guards to bring him. And he said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It's interesting. He's looking at a shackled man, beaten almost beyond recognition already, who looked like anything but a king. The Greek tells us that it's, it, it was almost like Pilate said this as he looked at him, you? Are you the king of the Jews? But he still asked the question. Jesus answered, verse 34, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Modern translation depends on who's asking. This is interesting. 
He says, if you're asking, am I a political king? No. If you're asking as, as a governor, if you're asking as a representative of Rome, if you're asking as a human king, if I am a human king wanting to take control of your kingdom or Caesar's kingdom or exert a political kingdom or create any kind of action like that, the implication is no if you're asking on your own. But if they have told you that I'm a king, oh, there is something to that. He goes on. Well, actually, he pauses there having let this stand, and Pilate contemplates it for a minute, and Pilate gets the point. He's basically, he basically says in verse 35, I don't care who you are. I have no issue with you. Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? They're they're making the accusation, not me, he says. Jesus answered further, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Now we see that Jesus honestly states that there is a kingdom that he rules and will rule fully, but it's not the one Pilate understands. It's not a kingdom of this world yet. I said yet. He said, if my kingdom, you put it this way, if my kingdom were this world, you would have seen my, my disciples fighting when they came to try and arrest me in Gethsemane, and I would have allowed them permission, and there would have been a uh, a sword fight, a firefight, a, a rebellion, and there would have been an attempt to get me out of there and get me out of here. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this realm. It's not temporal. It's not physical, not earthly yet anyway. One commentator put it this way, Jesus, when, when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, by this phrase he meant that his kingdom is not connected to earthly, political, and national entities not the way Pilate was thinking, and not the way they were lying. Nor does it have its origin in the evil world system that is in rebellion against God. If his kingdom was of this world, he would have fought. So would his disciples. The kingships of this world preserved themselves by fighting with force. Messiah's kingdom does not originate in the efforts of man, but with the Son of Man forcefully and decisively conquering sin and the lives of his people through the truth and someday conquering the evil world system at his second coming when he establishes the earthly form of his kingdom. Is Jesus going to have a kingdom on this earth? Oh, yes, just not yet. Revelation eleven fifteen says, as the, as the seventh trumpet begins to sound and the final judgments of God begin to be tipped, heaven rejoices and says, finally, quote, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But that is yet future in its physical fullness. He'll conquer this evil world at his second coming. But before Pilate, his kingdom was no threat. He wasn't going to take over Israel. He wasn't going to take over Rome. He was going to work in the hearts of men and women through truth and draw them into a walk with him. 
That's what he was about. And that's why he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Pilate did hear that. Did Jesus deny being a king? Yes and no. Denied being a king in the way they lied about him and Pilate, what Pilate expected. But oh no, I have a kingdom, Jesus said. So you are a king, Pilate said to him. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. That's the same Hebrew word he used with, with, with Caiaphas earlier that day. You said it. It's a way of saying yes. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says, I'm building a kingdom now based on the truth of my gospel and who I am. And what he was really doing here was basically saying, in the midst of all this cacophony, Pilate, would you like to hear the truth? I stand before you. We have a private audience together. I'm building a kingdom right now of people that come and trust my truth and are changed by my gospel. One day I'll build it physically and visibly, but even now you can be transformed by the truth that I bear today. Oh, the mastery of Jesus in the midst of all this injustice, the physical beatings, the human ugliness, the entrapment, the strategies, the maneuvers. Who's in true control? Like I said last week, Jesus. I'm the king of truth, Pilate. And since we're talking about it, would you like to know the truth? I think there was a moment where that could have happened. And look how Pilate responds. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Scholars have looked at those three words for 2,000 years and still do not know all that they may have meant in the mind of now dead Pilate. But we do know it was a dismissal, whether it was just cynicism or whether it was hopelessness. I tend to believe it was the cynicism of the secular man. In fact, I think Pilate represents secular man. I think Pilate represents for all time the cynical, secular person, the man or woman who doesn't believe in any creator, any revealer of truth, any ultimate truth, who believes that human beings are the measure of it all. A totally secular mind rejects truth that is given and says it's all relative it's all whether it works or not. It's all whether it benefits me or not. And there's nothing more than that. There's no God. There's no supernatural. There's no meaning. There's no purpose giver. There's no eternity. There's no truth that governs me. And Pilate looked at the truth right in the face and turned on his heel and walked away. He is the emblem of the secular heart of every generation. He is this generation. You say, what is the cure for that? 
ultimately answers fall to the ground. Sentiment falls to the ground. The only cure for that is the repentance. <laughs> it's decision. And Pilate made his. What is truth? And after he said this, John says he went back outside to the Jews the porch and told them, I find no guilt in him. And of course, Luke records this sad moment. Back to the text. Go back to Luke 23, please. So that whole conversation in John 18 is put together in one verse by Luke. Pilate asked me, the king of the Jews, he answered, you've said so. I just gave you the full detail on what really all transpired. And then Pilate came back out and said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Now, what does that tell us? Pilate didn't believe Jesus was the truth and didn't have any interest in it, but he did also did not believe Jesus was any threat. He didn't believe he was, he was a king to be worried about. He had this fanciful idea of being a king of another kingdom, but insofar as a threat to Rome was concerned, nah, there's no issue here. And so Pilate walks out with what I would say is number four, the fourth observation, and that's the first verdict 23.4, I find no guilt in this man. Now, why do I say it's the first verdict? Because there's three different verdicts that we're going to see over the next few weeks that Pilate rendered. He tried to tell the Jews three different times, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate was wicked, and Pilate was cowardly, but even Pilate, buried way deep down on the bottom floor, still had a conscience of some type. And he knew that fundamentally this man was innocent. And he kept trying to come back. That shows you the depth of depravity that was at play in the courtyard out there in the hearts of those that had brought Jesus to trial. I find no guilt in this man. It's interesting. Pilate's voice goes down in history three different times declaring how blameless Jesus was. God put it in the record. In fact, it probably was included in the, the court record, now that I think of it standing up here, in Pilate's palace. Pilate declared three times, he's innocent. I find no guilt in this man. Maybe it was there until Rome was raised. I don't know. You see, that's how perfect and blameless Jesus was. And, and the Father was in control of even this because the Father had prophesied many times in one of those hundreds of prophecies about his Son that Jesus would be innocently condemned. Just one place in Isaiah 53, the great prophecy chapter about Jesus, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although... He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. The father said, when my son is tried, he'll be innocent. He used the mouth of Pilate to declare it. History affirms it. You say, well, why did it have to happen? Next verse in Isaiah, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The father, in his wisdom, decided to use the most unjust moment in history to create justice for the most unjust people in history. 
Because this is the way Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to be innocent to die for your sin, didn't he? Oh, yes. And every footstep he takes to Calvary, God the Father ordains events to show just how innocent he was. Well, Pilate, with what conscience he has stirring a little bit, tries to tell them, I find no guilt in him. He, 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 he hopes that this ends this problem in his interrupted morning. But they throw his words back at his face, and that's the fifth thing I see, and that's their fervent opposition. But they were urgent saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and so on. They weren't having a word of it. Urgent. Bishop Ryle says that that's a a word that literally meant they grew more strong and more violent. They persisted in their accusation. We'd say they went ballistic and stayed there. It just made them angrier, and they were just going to have blood. They wanted him dead. So Pilate is suddenly shocked. I think this is the first time in the whole narrative where he becomes afraid. And there are other times when this fear deepens. He steps back. They get louder. And they bring more false accusations. They said he he stirs up the people. This is so ironic. He had done nothing but teach the people and comfort the people and heal the people. Who had been stirring up the people? These guys. They were milling around, getting people to join the mob right then and getting people to to, to yell. And some of these people didn't even know what they were yelling about this morning. They were stirring them people up themselves. But just lie after lie. It's just, you you look at this and you might say that the amazing hardness of these Jews. And you might even be tempted to say that Jews... They were remarkably hateful people, right? Wrong. I caution you. You know, anti-Semites for years have used these passages to paint the Jews as the solitary killers of Christ and to, and to color them with that wickedness and that accusation, but that's not true Because you see, both the Jews and the Romans conspired here, and this was all under the plan of God. They represent all of us. They were under the sovereignty of the Lord. You see, this is not a problem here that, that a particular group of people had. The problem is a particular person. Let me repeat that. When it comes to hatred like this in regards to Christ. It's not a problem that with a particular group of people that have it. It's a problem with a particular person, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. That's what happens. It was who Jesus was and what Jesus taught. You know, it's been said you can walk into any room, in this country at least, and say, I believe in God. And the majority of people in that room will probably still respond positively, saying, okay, good for you. But if you continued and said, and I believe that Jesus of Nazareth was his one and only son, and he is the only way to God. 
What's going to happen in the room then? You will quickly find yourself opposed. Maybe canceled if that room is a chat room and social media, or if that room is a break room at your job or in some kind of official conversation. See, Jesus, when he's fully described, provokes a reaction in people. He did then and he does now. People cannot be neutral about Jesus because he reveals their souls to them. And what he did on that cross reveals their sin. He said it in John 3. Elsewhere in John, I'm not quite sure. They hate me because until I came, they, they had no sin. But the nature of who I am and what I'm going to do on that cross reveals their sin. So in fact, it might even be an interesting thing for you to do the next time you find yourself in a discussion with a, a non-believer who gets heated when you talk about Jesus, ask them why they feel so strongly about this. Because that will get you to the heart of the matter. Sometimes we think we're having a nice, kind, polite conversation about Jesus. Well, I'll tell you what, sometimes if it stays nice and calm, you're probably not getting anywhere. Do you understand what I'm saying? There comes a point where in order to be fully related to God, you're going to have to tell them the, the full story about Jesus and about their sin, you see. So the problem was not any particular group of people. And we have seen this kind of hostility rise against Jesus through the centuries. Let me finish. The last thing I see is that Pilate caves. And then he finds what's music to the ears of any politician, a loophole. When Pilate heard this, what? They said, he's been teaching and he started in Galilee and now he's down here. Pilate hears, Galilee? He asked whether the man was a Galilean and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Galilee was technically under the rule of Herod, who was another appointed kind of a tin-pot king. And uh, Pilate saw a political solution to this growing problem at his doorstep. He was frightened. And uh, he decided to punt this to Herod very happily. So he had a solution. He thought it was a good one. And he dumped the case off to another jurisdiction. And he thought that ended it, but as we're going to see in future teaching, uh, not so fast. Well, that's how the human narrative ends, and that's where we'll bring it to a close. So let me just point out the obvious, quite the sordid story, huh? Oh. Every dimension of humanity at its worst And there's Jesus shining at his greatest. But it is a sordid story, and I have to tell you that in the weeks to come as we go through the final trials and the crucifixion, it's just going to, you're going to see more to come. And I was looking at this, and it leads me to point out as I close something that commentators across the years have pointed out about these trials. They've pointed out that even though these are the trials of Jesus, who's on trial here? Jesus. They point out that actually he's not the one on trial here. His accusers are. 
I mentioned this last time. Really, this is a story about all those that accused Christ and attacked Christ and betrayed Christ and convicted Christ. It reveals who they are. Everyone, from the high priest to the guards that beat Jesus to the the cynical Sanhedrin to Pilate himself. Jesus isn't the one on trial here. His accusers are, and they all convict themselves by their reactions to Jesus, don't they? James Stalker, the Bible commentator, said this, quote, whenever a person is confronted with Jesus, Jesus reveals who they are. Think about it. Think about all the encounters throughout the Gospels that people have with Jesus Christ. Whether it's the rich young ruler or the woman who's lost her son or the woman who comes to anoint his feet, whoever encounters Jesus, Jesus reveals who they are. This is how he is and who he is. And so let me ask you, what has being confronted by Jesus revealed about you? You've heard about him. Hopefully from this pulpit, you've heard him explained truthfully. You've been confronted by him. You've had an encounter with him. What is it revealed about you? A heart that has little use for him, but that's here for other reasons or a heart that broke under its burden of sin before him and found the perfect Savior and a majestic Lord.